0: In the beginning, it's easy for them to manipulate you when you have nothing, and they're
1: literally providing you with everything.
2: Oftentimes, a woman has nowhere to turn, nor medical care.
1: That a
0: seven-year-old girl was being sexually abused, and that content was being spread around the dark, dark web. web.
3: You're listening to The Impact, coronavirus and organized crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. For 12 weeks, this special edition weekly podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organised crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. This week, our fourth in the series, we're going to be discussing human trafficking, a crime where people are trapped through the use of violence, deception, coercion and exploitation for the financial gain of others. Trafficking comes in so many different forms, forced labour, child soldiers, forced begging, sexual exploitation, forced marriage, selling, children and even organ removal. We'll be examining how crimes and patterns of vulnerability are changing as a result of the virus in different parts of the world. Parts of this programme don't make easy listening. Underneath all the statistics and facts, we'll be discussing the plight of human beings, just like you and me, and you'll find out that we might be more involved in human trafficking practices than you might think. So let's start in Europe, and a country that has a real problem with human trafficking, Romania. It's long been one of the main source countries for victims of human trafficking in the European Union. Both women and girls for sexual exploitation and men for forced labour. But human trafficking is growing as a practice in Romania itself. Both its own citizens who are exploited for forced labour and forced begging, the trafficking of minors, as well as a destination for trafficked persons from other regions of the world like Asia and Africa. So why does Romania have such an acute human trafficking problem? Ioana Bauer is the director of Iliberare, an organization who worked to combat human trafficking in Romania and neighboring countries. And she's also one of the 2020 fellows of the Global Initiatives Resilience Fund.
2: We always talk about human trafficking uh, not being just uh, one big problem, but a sum of vulnerabilities. So Romania has exported a lot of folks to Western Europe because the opportunities here were lacking. So we had people who were trying to find a better life somewhere abroad where they thought they would get more means to make money. But what ended up happening was they ended up in different organized crime networks that would benefit and profit from their exploitation so trafficking starts with the dream of a better life a lot of times it's masked under legitimate job opportunities or relationships depending on how the recruitment happens but people are leaving because they don't have opportunities or they feel like they don't have opportunities in Romania or because they actually want to get their life transformed overnight, so to speak.
3: Who are the victims of trafficking in Romania?
2: So if you look at the numbers at the European level and also at the national level, you'll see that human trafficking affects disproportionately women and girls. So it's definitely a form of gender-based violence as well as a form of organized crime violence. Um, You will see people who come from different backgrounds, whether it's Big cities or small villages, that's not necessarily there's not a big discrepancy uh, when it comes to where people come from. But if we were to talk about a profile of a victim, we'll see that there's different vulnerabilities that people have. So, for example, lack of education, lack of social support, lack of opportunities when it comes to work in their own communities. These are people who are trying to make it out of their current situation and to improve their lives no matter the cost.
3: And who are the traffickers?
2: We have different profiles of traffickers. So if we're talking about the first phase, when you have the recruitment happening, a lot of times what happens is that these are folks from the same communities as the victims. They usually have the same vulnerabilities as the victims and the same lack of opportunities within their community. What then happens is, once victims are recruited, the people who are operating the rings vary from organised crime families to even different public figures that are, are involved.
3: We're in the middle of a global health crisis at the moment, which has caused massive disruption around the world. Has the pandemic had an impact on this specific illicit trade in Romania?
2: I think we still have more questions than answers at this point, but we are definitely seeing uh, specific things happening. So, for example, there's a huge increase when it comes to violence and aggression and different kinds of infractionality, because right now in Romania, We live under a state of emergency, so the Ministry of Internal Affairs has a lot of duties that have to do specifically with this pandemic. That means that a lot of times you won't have people who are available to respond to different calls. Uh, Romania doesn't have proactive identification of victims of human trafficking as it is, but now it's even more difficult to find police officers or people who are willing to go and investigate because... The capacity is very much into this pandemic and into the state of emergency. Another aspect that we need to take into consideration, because we've talked about human trafficking as being a sum of vulnerability, is the the economic side where Over a million people have lost their jobs already in Romania. They're either in technical leave or they've lost their jobs altogether. So these people are going to be even more vulnerable when it comes to different kind of job offers that promise the world and fast money once this all is over.
3: So are the traffickers recruiting more victims or are they just using the people they already have differently?
2: I think it's more of using people differently. We've seen globally, I believe, a growth in online sexual exploitation. So basically, the underground brothels and the street exploitation that right now is very difficult to happen because of the state of emergency. Just to paint a picture, in Romania, you're not allowed to go out of your house unless you have a slip where you explain exactly where you're going, for what purpose, and what time. So it would be very hard for the business of organized crime to run as usual when it comes, for example, to street forced prostitution. So all that has moved either online or even more underground. So we're seeing more and more people either coming out of this and not having any options, any opportunities. So the vulnerability of people who have been victims is even higher and also a lot of the activity moving online.
1: Once
3: this is all over and restrictions are lifted, what do you expect to happen?
2: I think this is something that we're just trying to imagine, like what is our normal going to look like? And based on that, what are going to be the priorities? Because right now we see all of the forces and all of the resources going towards the medical system because of the crisis, right? How are we going to be able to prioritize once we're out of this? What should happen? What should start first? I think there's going to be a lot of baggage in all of the systems, whether it's police, law enforcement, or the judiciary system. At this point, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I think it's going to be a big challenge to just know how to prioritize so that we don't get in even bigger problems, if that makes sense.
3: Iwana Bauer from El Liberare and one of the GI's 2020 Resilience Fellows. You can find out more about Iwana and the work she does, as well as other Resilience Fellows, by visiting resiliencefund.globalinitiative.net. Last week we discussed cybercrime and we're heading into that realm again. A Swedish technology company called NetClean are experts in detecting online child sexual abuse material. They work closely with businesses, corporations, and governments to fight child sex crime in the workplace. They use technology that triggers when it detects a digital fingerprint within the image or video that law enforcement have classified as child abuse material. The benefit is that it helps identify those who have a sexual interest in children, which gives an opportunity to potentially rescue abused kids and acts as a deterrent that may safeguard other children against this abuse. So who are the offenders that do this? Anna Borgstrom is the CEO of Netclean.
4: There is no such thing as a typical offender. We looked at this in our 2017 report. We found that men are greatly overrepresented as offenders. But other than that, offenders come from all parts of the world, all parts of society, all ages and all professions. They are often in a relationship and many of them have children, but they can also be single. And we focused on the workplace and in our 2018 report we found that offenders who use their work computer to access and consume child sexual abuse material were of any age and any position within the company. There was a bias towards those positions that have their own computer and especially laptops that they take out of the office when working remotely or on business trips.
3: It would seem that a lot of offenders are accessing this material through their work computers. How are they able to access this on a corporate network?
4: If you look at how the consumption of child sexual abuse material works, it can be found on the open internet and uh, most filter solutions that big companies have today, they are filtering on, on child sexual abuse categories using different blocking lists. And that is good, but most material of child sexual abuse is actually distributed through peer to peer networks and on darknet. So, if you think of the workplace or the work computer, uh, you can actually access other areas on the internet than only the open net with the work computer. And we also found that most of the alarms in our systems were from USB drives or other external devices. But the material is of course stored everywhere, and in our last year report we found that law enforcement mostly find material stored on computers, mobile phones, USB drives and ported devices, and also in cloud storage solutions. Just to mention some of the uh, big cloud services that we found in the report that are used to store child sexual abuse material are Dropbox, Google services, Mega, OneDrive, etc. And uh, the report also showed that it's, the material is distributed on all the social media services like Snapchat, Facebook, Kiki, Instagram, Whatsapp, etc., etc. And of course, also live streaming services such as Skype.
3: Those are some really big names in the technology industry and I'm sure that people listening will find it quite surprising that these platforms are being used. It's just so open.
4: Yeah. Yeah, the more the services used, the more common it is. And and I also think that there are a lot of services and storage places and hosting services that are not reporting to law enforcement and that are not using technology to detect material.
3: We heard last week on our cybercrime episode that one thing we do know as a result of COVID-19 is that there is an increase in online child sexual abuse material. Why is that?
4: Well, I think that uh, both the offender and the victims, the children, are spending more times at home and more times out of the office. And I actually read a report that came out today that said that as of April 3rd this year, COVID-19 has led to at least 188 countrywide school closures. And that's impacting more than 90% of the world's student population meaning that children are online, unsupervised, more increasingly than than ever before. And I don't think that we have ever lived in a time where we have so many children unsupervised on the Internet. And the law enforcement also report that they see an increase in discussion in online forums where offenders say that there is easier to access children right now.
3: So from the work that you've done and the pattern of behavior that you see with more people work from home does this increase the possibilities of people accessing this material through work computers?
4: Yes, definitely. I think that also it shows I mean people are working uh, from home, I think it sort of builds a belief that you are more secured and you can also see other security threats and phishing attacks etc are increasing when people are working at home and uh, I don't think that the business community worldwide is ready for uh, this amount of sort of remote work that is taking place at the moment
3: thank you very much anna anna borgstrom ceo of netclean and you can follow anna on twitter at borgstrom anna there is plenty more to come in the show so stay with us i'd just like to take this moment to say that the global initiative against transnational organized crime are across social media Just search for The Global Initiative and you'll find us. You can also visit our website, which is www.globalinitiative.net, where you can find in-depth reports and analysis in subjects as far-ranging as ISIS antiquities trafficking in Iraq, to human smuggling, to wildlife crime, as well as the latest COVID crime watch. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back to The Impact Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative with me, Jack Megan Vickers. This week we're discussing the impact of COVID-19 on one of the most heinous of all crimes, human trafficking. In 1979 the Chinese government introduced what came to be known as the One Child Policy. And although some exceptions were made, it literally meant that a family were limited to only having one child. The traditional preference for male children together with the one child policy led to large numbers of girls being abandoned, placed into an orphanage, sex-selective abortions, or even cases of female infanticide. Although the policy has been reversed, it has had a massive impact on the gender balance of the country. There are just too many men and not enough women. This has had severe consequences for women in neighbouring countries as human traffickers are bringing them across the border into exploitation. Tracking this phenomenon is Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in Vietnam, an organisation that receives support from the GI Resilience Fund. Caitlin Wyndham is the resources and partnerships leader at Blue Dragon.
1: There are estimates of between 10 and 40 million men who won't be able to find wives locally which is driving a huge trade in in women and girls from the region and especially from Vietnam into China, into into forced marriages. There is also of course some labour trafficking and that tends to look like some child labour, primarily in the agricultural industry but also in some mining, sort of more informal small-scale family mining.
3: And who tend to be the victims?
1: For the women and girls going to China, the traffickers target the most vulnerable women. We've found that about 80% of the victims are ethnic minority people. The actual population of ethnic minorities is quite small, but they make up a disproportionate number of the victims. And this is because they also make up a disproportionate number of the poor. So they tend to live on the the worst land in the most remote areas and have the worst access to services like education, livelihoods development. Um, the vulnerabilities map quite closely onto the poverty and disadvantage maps. So it's, it's very similar areas.
3: Of course, China is the country where COVID-19 started and is the big northern neighbour of Vietnam. Has the pandemic had an impact on the human trafficking trade?
1: The main impact that we're seeing at the moment is that with travel restrictions and the border has been closed since late January, actually. Vietnam responded very quickly to the pandemic and, and closed the border very quickly and stopped all flights and all travel from China. So what that's meant is that at the moment it's very, very difficult for us to do rescues. We can't actually get girls out of China at the moment, mainly because they can't travel internally within China. As
3: an organisation, Blue Dragon are in touch with trafficked victims, people actually living through this terrible ordeal right now. What's it like for them at the moment, knowing that with border closures and so on, there isn't an awful lot that can be done to help them other than giving them that moral support?
1: Yeah, it's a really tough time, and obviously, you know, it's not me that's in touch with them, but our, our Vietnamese staff, particularly our our chief lawyer, who does an amazing job. There's a case that he's dealing with at the moment. The girl is absolutely desperate. She's in a really terrible situation, and she's she's experiencing a lot of violence from the family where she is, and she's absolutely desperate to get home. And we had been in touch with her and trying to organise for her to escape so that she could come back to Vietnam, but we've had to... Our lawyer advised her that, you know, she, she has to stay put at the moment, it's just not safe for her to, to be rescued at the moment. And he then received a, a message from her saying, don't worry, I can't take it anymore, I just can't live with this anymore and then she went silent for a couple of days. So this was extremely worrying and extremely difficult and finally after a couple of days he managed to get back in touch with her and uh, she had in fact tried to commit suicide but had failed, thankfully. And she's still alive, She's still, but she's still in a desperate situation and we're really doing our best now to try and get her out of that situation and get her back to Vietnam. It really can be quite terrible, especially, you know, some of the girls have been in a terrible situation for months or years and having made contact with someone who potentially can rescue them and then having to wait and wait and wait is is very difficult for them. Yeah.
3: Thank you very much to Caitlin Windham from the Blue Dragons Children's Foundation in Vietnam and one of this year's Resilience Fellows. Unemployment and regional insecurity cause people to unwittingly trust human traffickers who promise lucrative jobs at the end of the journey. In East Africa, Kenya is considered a hub or transit center for human trafficking, with many traffickers using Nairobi as a destination center as well as a transit point to other regions such as Europe, America, and other parts of Africa. But an act have said that most migrant labourers from Kenya continue to be forced into slavery in the Middle East. Judy Beria is a journalist in Kenya who works with the Wayemo Foundation, an NGO that deals with international criminal law and transborder crimes, and is another of our 2020 resilience fellows. She tracks human trafficking in the region closely. So what has been seen since the outbreak of coronavirus?
0: The first story that came into my attention was uh, girls and um, young girls, let me say ladies, dumped by their agents because of the fears of the pandemic. And they were dumped somewhere in one of the slums in Nairobi. These were around 29 women who are actually left with no uh, travel documents, no identification documents. And this is happening also for the women, mostly trafficked in the Middle East. They have equally been dumped. It's been very difficult to get the status Statistics or even to get a report, like how many of them are trapped outside the country. But with the crisis that is facing the world, now you can imagine the kind of stress they are going through, the kind of uh, agonizing journey that they have to go through. We are just hoping that the civil society groups and different organizations that uh, deal with human trafficking uh, probably will be able to collect data or try to find out about the state of those who are locked outside the country. But here in Kenya, At least most of those who are trapped in the houses, some of them have been rescued by police. So for the time being, because of the pandemic, uh, not a lot of human trafficking that is taking place.
3: So how much does the lack of employment opportunities and poverty play into the traffickers' hands?
0: It looks very possible that human trafficking is going to shoot very high. As soon as I think we are done with coronavirus, the next crisis that we'll be handling is about more young people becoming vulnerable uh, victims of human trafficking because you can imagine the economy is doing really bad, an entire economic meltdown, no jobs, no income at all. This means that we are really going to witness quite uh, high numbers of vulnerable Kenyans who are going to be trafficked to different parts of the country or even within the country to earn a living to survive. So it looks very dim, and I think any organisations that are dealing with human trafficking, I think, should start uh, preparing for an upsurge.
3: What do you expect after the restrictions are lifted? It sounds like you're expecting a real upsurge.
0: As soon as we are done with coronavirus, I'm pretty sure that recruiting agents, some official, others are non-informal. I am pretty sure they are really looking forward to that because people will be desperate looking for jobs and looking for a waste of earning a living. So this is obviously going to escalate and it will be in a larger scale than we've seen before.
3: And with law enforcement so stretched at the moment, is this still being monitored?
0: Currently, human trafficking is not prioritized during this coronavirus outbreak, so the only cases that are currently being handled, the entire focus is on coronavirus or cases such as murder cases. So you can imagine, as much as the law enforcers prosecution investigation, you know, are focusing on one area, it will be very difficult for us actually to know whether human trafficking still happening within the country because trafficking has been happening within the country itself. So even if it will be happening within the country for now, it will be so difficult to be able to know whether it's happening. First, there's no place to record uh, such cases. And secondly, think of uh, shelter houses. For example, if you've gone to rescue the girls, like the girls who are rescued, I don't even know their fate. Because we tried to follow up, nobody knows uh, whether they were able to return to their homes, whether they were able to go back to their shelter houses.
3: I guess the fact that you're unable to keep track of these people, the fear is that these victims will be lost in the trafficking system again. And to find them again will be a difficult process.
0: Yeah, it's going to be very difficult because you can imagine, like even for me as a journalist, I cannot uh, leave Nairobi. It's the same thing for the law enforcers who are busy uh, implementing the curfew and the entire concentration is on coronavirus and the bigger cases. So it will be very difficult to keep track on human trafficking. Beggars are on the streets and these are beggars who are trafficked from Tanzania without travel documents. Where do you even report such a case? They're being abused physically, sexually, a lot of things are happening there. But you can imagine, we are not even able to report. And even if you report, you try to rescue them, where do you take them? You cannot take them back to their country. We don't have shelter houses because of the risk that is involved with the coronavirus. So basically, yes, a lot of challenges arise there, but of course you can imagine the hands are tied for most of the people because even the investigations, the prosecution, we are working with lean staff so it is very difficult to keep track of exactly what is really happening.
3: That was Judy Kaberia, a journalist in Kenya and one of the Resilience Fellows 2020. You can follow Judy on Twitter at Judy Caberia, and you can keep track of all the 2020 Resilience Fellows by visiting the website resiliencefund.globalinitiative.net. And finally, we turn to Latin America, where forced labour is a particular concern and an unreported issue. It's estimated that nearly 2 million people in Latin America and the Caribbean work through forced labour. This essentially means people are forced to work a job against their will under the threat of punishment. This can come across industries such as agriculture, where you've got palm oil, sugar, coffee, to mining, illegal logging and illegal fishing. Like many victims, people are recruited through deception, recruitment fees and then documentation is held so they can't leave and organised criminal groups use threats of violence against the families of workers if they try to leave the job. These workers are employed not just in illicit industries, but legitimate ones as well. But there's been little research and a lack of media attention into the issue of forced labour. So as this is such a pervasive issue, why doesn't it garner more attention? Quinn Kepish is a Senior Programme Director at Verite. It's not this traditional
5: conception of people being handcuffed or or chained or locked in a compound, but you can have people who on the surface may look like they're free, but you need to sit down with them and and ask if they were deceived during recruitment, if they're indebted, if there's any threat against them, if they leave, if they have to stay for a certain amount of time, if their documents have been retained. So a number of different questions, and and in many cases, even establishing that rapport with workers and being able to ask those questions is, is quite
3: How much do local economies rely on this form of forced labour?
5: a lot of different sectors are really subsidized by forced labor and a lot of the consumer products that we purchase are, are subsidized by forced labor some sectors we've seen workers on average earning about a third of the minimum wage and when we dig deeper we find that because workers are paid by production it's actually that you know maybe a, a worker his wife and two children who collectively are earning a third of a minimum wage which in turn means that the products are, are really subsidized by their sub minimum wage and employment which again is facilitated by being trafficked. They have no way to refuse this. They have no other alternatives and no way to leave once they've gone to the agricultural estates. And so it's a situation in which both employers and consumers are benefiting off of the hard labour of a large number of workers.
3: With large movements of people in all direction across Latin America, what impact is COVID-19 having on human trafficking?
5: I expect that we will only see these kinds of situations get worse. For example, looking at abusive requirements for overtime or on-call work, that's likely to increase in in, in sectors in which there's increased demand. Work in hazardous conditions is another to which workers haven't consented. And so, you know, again, many of these workplaces will become inherently hazardous. And you have unscrupulous employers who are are holding workers against their will, and it's very unlikely that those recruiters and employers are going to have concern for workers' health and safety. That they're going to provide masks, gloves, social distancing, hand sanitizer, those kinds of things. So workers who are trafficked are going to be extremely vulnerable to contracting COVID-19 in addition to being uh, held against their will. And then we also documented in a report that varied for the U.S. Department of State's Trafficking Persons Office, a number of different socioeconomic factors that are linked to increased risk of human trafficking. So those include crime and violence, political instability and conflict, poverty and inequality and changes to immigration policies specifically making the immigration policies more restrictive and all of those also we we expect to get worse with the coronavirus uh, pandemic.
3: And what about those already invulnerable positions like the refugees from Venezuela? Colombia already has a very large number of these refugees in the country but due to COVID pressures has reduced state help. Will that push more people towards traffickers? I think that that's a
5: huge risk is that in general, vulnerable populations will only become more vulnerable during this pandemic. We've already seen that enforcement is extremely lax on forced labor in many Latin American countries. And as you have increased travel restrictions, as you have a focusing of of revenue and resources and attention on combating the pandemic, and at the same time in certain sectors, increased demand or continued demand or cuts in workforces as workers get sick or unable to travel to work, you'll likely have more focus on utilizing these these vulnerable populations, such as refugees, to close those gaps. So, in terms of Colombia, we've seen that it's there are reports that it's halved its resources to care for Venezuelan refugees. and There were already many issues with a lack of registration of refugees, with refugees being exploited in the agricultural sector, and we expect with this cut in funding and turning attention to other areas that this will get much worse.
3: And what? We'll- can we expect across Latin America after the pandemic passes? Latin America is likely going to be one
5: of the regions hardest hit by the recession following the pandemic. And we're likely to see poverty increase to levels not seen since the Great Depression. And so there's going to be, you know, in addition to the the large number of economic migrants and migrants fleeing violence and organized crime that that existed prior to the pandemic, we're likely to to see people who are truly making a life and death decision to migrate in order to be able to feed their families. And so at the same time, we're likely to see the migration restrictions that have been put in place continue to harden and not to let off for a while, because I think it's going to be hard to get that genie back in a bottle. And in general, immigration restrictions were already trending in that direction. And so that only makes, you know, migration more expensive, whether that's utilizing human smugglers to bring workers across the border illegally, or whether that's utilizing other types of labor brokers and, uh, and lawyers to get work visas. And so what we're likely to see is increased demand and in turn uh, increased cost of migration, which will increase indebtedness and will also have workers at the whims of human smugglers and, and human traffickers.
3: Thank you very much, Quinn Kepish, the Senior Programme Director at Verite. That's all we've got time for this week, but look out for two of our related policy briefs which are coming soon on human trafficking and another on human smuggling. Remember that you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter about coronavirus and organised crime by heading over to our website, which is www.globalinitiative.net. And don't forget that you can find the GI on social media by searching for The Global Initiative. That's all we've got time for this week, leave a review, like, share us with your friends, why not just hit the subscribe button. Next week we'll be talking about street gangs and extortion. Until next week, I'm Jack Megan vickers stay safe.
2: No one should ever be made to feel this way, just for seeking a better life.